Chapter Six I don't like this, Murphy said. Helen Beckett has got plenty of reasons to dislike you. I snorted. Who doesn't? I'm serious, Harry. The elevator doors closed and we started up. The building was old and the elevator wasn't the fastest in the world. Murphy shook her head. If what you said about people beginning to fear you is true, then there's gotta be a reason for it. Maybe someone is telling stories. And you like Helen for that? She already shot you, and that didn't work. Maybe she figured it was time to get nasty. Sticks and stones and small caliber bullets may break my bones, I said. Words will never, etc. It's awfully coincidental to find her here. She's a con, Harry, and she wound up in jail because of you. I can't imagine that she's making nice with a local magic community for the camaraderie. I didn't think cops knew about big words like camaraderie, Murph. Are you sure you're a real police person? She gave me an exasperated glance. Do you ever stop joking around? I mutter off-color limericks in my sleep. Just promise me that you'll watch your back, Murphy said. There once was a girl from Nantucket, I said. Her mouth was as big as a bucket. Murphy flipped both her hands, palms up in a gesture of frustrated surrender. Damn it, Dresden. I lifted an eyebrow. You seem worried about me. There are women up there, she said. You don't always think very clearly where women are concerned. So you think I should watch my back? Yes. I turned to her and looked down at her and said, more quietly, Golly, Murph, why did you think I wanted you along? She looked up and smiled at me, the corners of her eyes wrinkling, though her voice remained tart. I figured you wanted someone along who could notice things more subtle than a flashing neon sign. Oh, come on, I said. It doesn't have to be flashing. The elevator doors opened, and I took the lead down the hall to Anna Ash's apartment and stepped into a tingling curtain of delicate energy, four or five feet shy of the door. I drew up sharply, and Murphy had to put a hand against my back to keep from bumping into me. What is it? she asked. I held up my left hand. Though my maimed hand was still mostly numb to conventional stimuli, it had never had any trouble sensing the subtle patterns of organized magical energy. I spread out my fingers as much as I could, trying to touch the largest possible area as I closed my eyes and focused on my wizard senses. It's a ward, I said quietly. Like on your apartment? she asked. It's not as strong, I said waving my hand slowly over it. And it's a little cruder. I've got bricks and razor wire. This is more like aluminum siding and chicken wire. But it has a decent kick. Fire, I think. I squinted up and down the hall. Huh. I don't think there's enough there to kill outright. But it would hurt like hell. And a fire would set off the building's alarms, Murphy added. Make people start running out, summon the authorities. Uh-huh, I said, discouraging your average prowler, supernatural or not. It's not meant to kill. I stepped back and nodded to Murphy. Go ahead and knock. She gave me an arch look. That's a joke, right? If this ward isn't done right, it could react with my aura and go off. Can't you just take it apart? Whoever did this was worried enough to invest a lot of time and effort to make this home safer, I said. Kind of rude to tear it up. 
Murphy tilted her head for a second, and then she got it. And you'll scare them if you just walk through it like it wasn't there. Yeah, I said quietly. They're frightened, Murph. I've got to be gentle or they won't give me anything that can help them. Murphy nodded and knocked on the door. She rapped three times and the doorknob was already turning on the third rap. A small, prettily plump woman opened the door. She was even shorter than Murphy, mid-forties maybe, with blonde hair and rosy cherubic cheeks that looked used to smiling. She wore a lavender dress and carried a small dog, maybe a Yorkshire Terrier, in her arms. She smiled at Murphy and said, Of course, Sergeant Murphy, I know who you are. Maybe half a second after the woman started speaking, Murphy said, Hello, my name is Sergeant Murphy, and I'm a detective with the CPD. Murphy blinked for a second and fell silent. Oh, the woman said. I'm sorry, I forget sometimes. She made an airy little gesture with one hand. Such a scatterbrain. I started to introduce myself, but before I got my mouth open, the little woman said, Of course, we all know who you are, Mr. Dresden. She put her fingers to her mouth. They were shaking a little. Oh, I forgot again. Excuse me, I'm Abby. Pleased to meet you, Abby. I said quietly and extended my hand, relaxed, palm down, to the little Yorkie. The dog sniffed at my hand, quivering with eagerness as he did, and his tail started wagging. Hey, little dog. Toto, Abby said, and before I could respond, said, Exactly, a classic. If it isn't broken, why fix it? She nodded to me and said, Excuse me, I'll let our host speak to you. I was just closest to the door. She shut the door on us. Certainly, I said to the door. Murphy turned to me. Weird, I shrugged. At least the dog liked me. She knew what we were going to say before we said it, Harry. I noticed that. Is she telepathic or something? I shook my head. Not in the way you're thinking. She doesn't exactly hide what she's doing. And if she was poking around in people's heads, the council would have done something a long time ago. Then how did she know what we were about to say? My guess is that she's prescient, I said. She can see the future, probably only a second or two, and she probably doesn't have a lot of voluntary control over it. Murphy made a thoughtful noise. Could be handy. In some ways, I said. But the future isn't written in stone. Murphy frowned. Like, what if I decided to tell her my name was Karen Murphy instead of Sergeant, at the last second. Yeah, she'd have been wrong. People like her can sense a sort of a cloud of possible futures. We were in a fairly predictable situation here, even without bringing any magical talents into it, basic social interaction. So it looked like she saw exactly what was coming, but she didn't. She got to judge what was most probable, and it wasn't hard to guess correctly in this particular instance. That's why she seemed so distracted, Murphy said thoughtfully. Yeah, she was keeping track of what was happening, what was likely to happen, deciding what wasn't likely to happen, all in the window of a few seconds. I shook my head. It's a lot worse if they can see any farther than a second or two. Murphy frowned. Why? Because the farther you can see, the more possibilities exist, I said. Think of a chess game. A beginning player is doing well if he can see four or five moves into the game. 
10 moves in holds an exponentially greater number of possible configurations the board could assume. Master players can sometimes see even further than that. And when you start dealing with computers, the numbers are even bigger. It's difficult to even imagine the scope of it. And that's in a closed, simple environment, Murphy said, nodding. The chess game. There are far more possibilities in the real world. The biggest game, I shook my head. It's a dangerous talent to have. It can leave you subject to instabilities of one kind or another as side effects. Doctors almost always diagnose folks like Abby with epilepsy, Alzheimer's, or one of a number of personality disorders. I got five bucks that says that medical bracelet on her wrist says she's epileptic, and that the dog can sense seizures coming and warn her. I didn't see the bracelet, Murphy admitted. No bet. While we stood there talking quietly for maybe five minutes, a discussion took place inside the apartment. Low voices came through the door in tense, muffled tones that eventually cut off when a single voice, louder than the rest, overrode the others. A moment later, the door opened. The first woman we'd seen enter the apartment faced me. She had a dark complexion, dark eyes, short, dark, straight hair that made me think she might have had some Native Americans in the family a generation or three back. She was maybe five foot four, late thirties. She had a serious kind of face with faint, pensive lines between her brows. And from the way she stood, blocking the doorway with solidly planted feet, I got the impression that she could be a bulldog when necessary. No one here has broken any of the laws, Warden, she said in a quiet, firm voice. Gosh, that's a relief, I said. Anna Ash? She narrowed her eyes and nodded. I'm Harry Dresden, I said. She pursed her lips and gave me a speculative look. Are you kidding? I know who you are. I don't make it a habit to assume that everyone I meet knows who I am, I said, implying apology in my tone. This is Karen Murphy, Chicago PD. Anna nodded to Murphy and asked in a neutral, polite tone, May I see your identification, Ms. Murphy? Murphy already had her badge on its leather backing in hand, and she passed it to Anna. Her photo identification was on the reverse side of the badge, under a transparent plastic cover. Anna looked at the badge in the photo and compared it to Murphy. She passed it back almost reluctantly and then turned to me. What do you want? To talk, I said. About what? The Ordo Labes, I said and what's happened to several practitioners lately. Her voice remained polite on the surface, but I could hear bitter undertones. I'm sure you know much more about it than us. Not especially, I said. That's what I'm trying to correct. She shook her head, suspicion written plainly on her face. I'm not an idiot. The wardens keep track of everything. Everyone knows that. I sighed. Yeah, but I forgot to take my George Orwell-shaped multivitamins along with my breakfast bowl of Big Brother O's this morning. I was hoping you could just talk to me for a little while, the way you would with a human being. She eyed me a bit warily. Lots of people react to my jokes like that. Why should I? Because I want to help you. Of course you'd say that, she said. How do I know you mean it? Ms. Ash, Murphy put in quietly, He's on the level. We're here to help, if we can. 
Anna chewed on her lip for a minute, looking back and forth between us, and then glancing at the room behind her. Finally, she faced me and said, Appearances can be deceiving. I have no way of knowing if you are who and what you say you are. I prefer to err on the side of caution. Never hurts to be cautious, I agreed. But you're edging toward paranoid, Ms. Ash. She began to shut the door. This is my home, and I'm not inviting you inside. Groovy, I said, and stepped over the threshold and into the apartment, nudging her gently aside before she could close the door. As I did, I felt the pressure of the threshold, an aura of protective magical energy that surrounds any home. The threshold put up a faintly detectable resistance as my own aura of power met it, and could not cross it. If Anna, the home's owner, had invited me in, the threshold would have parted like a curtain. She hadn't, and as a result, if I wanted to come inside, I'd have to leave much of my power at the door. If I had to work any forces while I was in there, I'd be crippled practically to the point of total impotence. I turned to see Anna staring at me in blank surprise. She was aware of what I had just done. There, I told her. If I was of the spirit world, I couldn't cross your threshold. If I had planned on hurting someone in here, would I have disarmed myself? Stars and stones, would I have shown up with a cop to witness me doing it? Murphy took her cue from me and entered the same way. I, Anna said at a loss, how, how did you know the ward wouldn't go off in your face? Judgment call, I told her. You're a cautious person, and there are kids in this building. I don't think you'd have slapped up something that went boom whenever anyone stepped through the doorway. She took a deep breath and then nodded. You wouldn't have liked what happened if you'd tried to force the door, though. I believe you, I told her, and I did. Ms. Ash, I'm not here to threaten or harm anyone. I can't make you talk to me. If you want me to go right now, I'll go, I promised her. But for your own safety, please let me talk to you first. A few minutes, that's all I ask. Anna, came Abby's voice. I think you should hear them out. Yes, said another woman's voice, quiet and low. I agree, and I know something of him. If he gives you his word, he means it. Thinking on it, I hadn't ever really heard Helen Beckett's voice before, unless you counted moans. But its quiet solidity and lack of inflection went perfectly with her quasi-lifeless eyes. I traded an uneasy glance with Murphy, then looked back to Anna. Ms. Ash, I asked her. Give me your word. Swear it on your power. That's serious. At least among wizards in my league. Promises have power. One doesn't swear by one's magical talent and break the oath lightly. To do so would be to reduce one's own strength in the art. I didn't hesitate to answer. I swear to you, upon my power, to abide as a guest under your hospitality, to bring no harm to you or yours, nor to deny my aid if they would suffer thereby. She let out a short, quick breath and nodded. Very well. I promise to behave as a host with all the obligations that apply. And call me Anna, please. She beckoned with one hand and led us into the apartment. 
I trust you will not take it amiss if I do not make a round of introductions. Understandable. A full name, given from one's own lips, could provide a wizard or talented sorcerer with a channel, a reference point that could be used to target any number of harmful, even lethal spells, much like fresh blood, nail clippings, or locks of hair could be used for the same. It was all but impossible to give away your full name accidentally in a conversation, but it had happened, and if someone in the know thought a wizard might be pointing a spell their way, they got real careful, real fast, when it came to speaking their own name. No problem, I told her. Anna's apartment was nicer than most, and evidently had received almost a complete refurbishing in the past year or three. She had windows with a reasonably good view, and her furnishings were predominantly of wood and of excellent quality. Five women sat around the living area. Abby sat in a wooden rocking chair, holding her bright-eyed little Yorkie in her lap. Helen Beckett stood by a window, staring listlessly out at the city. Two other women sat on a sofa, the third on a love seat perpendicular to them. Should I take it that you know who I am? I asked them. They know, Anna said quietly. I nodded. All right, here's what I know. Something has killed as many as five female practitioners. Some of the deaths have looked like suicides. Evidence suggests that they weren't. I took a deep breath. And I found messages left for me, or someone like me, with at least two of the bodies. Things the cops couldn't have found. I think we're looking at a serial killer. And I think that your order might represent a pool of victims that fit his, or her, Murphy put in, not quite staring at Beckett. Beckett's mouth curled into a bitter little smile, though she did not otherwise move. Or her, I allowed, profile. Is he serious? Asked one of the women I didn't know. She was older than the others, early fifties. Despite the day's warmth, she wore a thin turtleneck sweater of light green and a dark gray cardigan. Her hair, caught back in a severe bun, had once been deep coppery red, though now it was sewn liberally with steely gray. She wore no makeup, square silver-rimmed spectacles over muddy brown-green eyes, and her eyebrows had grown out rather thicker than most women chose to allow. Very serious, I replied. Is there something I can call you? It doesn't seem polite to name you Turtleneck without checking first. She stiffened slightly, keeping her eyes away from mine, and said, Priscilla. Priscilla, I'm pretty much floundering around here. I don't know what's going on, and that's why I came to talk to you. Then how did you know of the Ordo? She demanded. In real life, I'm a private investigator, I told her. I investigate stuff. He's lying, Priscilla said, looking back at Anna. He has to be. You know what we've seen. Anna looked from Priscilla to me and then shook her head. I don't think so. What have you seen? I asked Anna. Anna looked around the room at the others for a moment, but none of them made any objections, and she turned back to me. You're correct. Several members of our order have died. What you might not know is that there are others who have vanished. She took a deep breath. Not only in the Ordo, but in the community as well. More than 20 people are unaccounted for since the end of last month. 
I let out a low whistle. That was serious. Don't get me wrong, people vanish all the time, most of them because they want to do it. But the people in our circles were generally a lot closer knit than most folks, in part because they were aware, to one degree or another, of the existence of supernatural predators who could and would take them, given the chance. It's a herd instinct, plain and simple, and it works. If 20 people had gone missing, odds were good that something was on the prowl. If the killer had taken them, I had a major problem on my hands, which admittedly wasn't exactly a novel experience. You say people have seen something. What? For, she shook her head and cleared her throat. <clears throat> For all three victims from within the order whose bodies have been found, they were last seen alive in the company of a tall man in a gray cloak. I blinked. And you thought it was me? I wasn't close enough to tell, Priscilla said. It was after dark, and she was on the street outside my apartment. I saw them through a window. She didn't quite manage to hide the fact that she'd almost said you instead of them. I was at box, Abby added, her tone serious, her eyes fixed in the middle distance. Late. I saw the man walk by with her outside. I didn't see that, Helen Beckett said. The words were flat and certain. Sally left the bar with a rather lovely dark-haired man with gray eyes and pale skin. My stomach twitched. In my peripheral vision, Murphy's facial expression went carefully blank. Anna lifted a hand in a gesture beseeching Helen for silence. At least two more reliable witnesses have reported that the last time they saw some of the folk who had disappeared, they were in the company of the gray-cloaked man. Several others have reported sightings of the beautiful dark-haired man instead. I shook my head. And you thought the guy in the cloak was me? How many tall, gray-cloaked men move in our circles in Chicago, sir? Priscilla said, her voice frosty. You can get gray corduroy for $3 a yard at a surplus fabric store, I told her. Tall men aren't exactly unheard of in a city of eight million, either. Priscilla narrowed her eyes. Who was it then? Abby tittered, which made Toto wag his tail. I pursed my lips in a moment of thought. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Murphy. Helen Beckett snorted out a breath through her nose. This isn't a joking matter. Priscilla snapped. Oh, sorry. Given that I only found out about a gray cloak sighting about two seconds ago, I had assumed the question was facetious. I turned to face Anna. It wasn't me, and it wasn't a warden of the council. Or at least, it damn well better not have been a warden of the council. And if it was, Anna asked quietly. I folded my arms. I'll make sure he never hurts anyone, ever again. Murphy stepped forward and said, Excuse me, you said that three members of the order had died. What were their names, please? Maria, Anna said, her words spaced with a slow, deliberate beat of a funeral march. Janine, Pauline. I saw where Murphy was going. What about 
Jessica Blanche, she asked. Anna frowned for a moment and then shook her head. I don't think I've heard the name. So she's not in the order, Murphy said, and she's not in the, uh, community? Not to my knowledge, Anna replied. She looked around the room. Does anyone here know her? Silence. I traded a glance with Murphy. Some of these things are not like the others. Some of these things are kind of the same, she responded. Somewhere to start, at least, I said. Someone's watch started beeping, and the girl on the couch beside Priscilla sat up suddenly. She was young, maybe even still in her teens, with a rich, smoke-colored skin of regions of eastern India. She had heavy-lidded brown eyes and wore a bandana tied over her straight, glossy black hair. She was dressed in a lavender ballet leotard with cream-colored tights covering long legs, and she had the muscled, athletic build of a serious dancer. She wore a man's watch that looked huge against her fine-boned wrist. She turned it off and then glanced up at Anna, fidgeting. Ten minutes. Anna frowned and nodded at her. She started toward the door, a gracious hostess politely walking us out. Is there anything else we can do for you, warden, Ms. Murphy? In the investigating business, when someone starts trying to rush you out in order to conceal some kind of information from you, it is what we professionals call a clue. Gee, I said brightly, what happens in ten minutes? Anna stopped, her polite smile fading. We have answered your questions as best we could. You gave me your word, warden, to abide by my hospitality, not to abuse it. Answering me may be for your own good, I replied. That's your opinion, she said. In my opinion, it is no business of yours. I sighed and nodded acquiescence. I handed her a business card. There's my number, in case you change your mind. Thank you, Anna said politely. Murphy and I left, and were silent all the way down in the elevator. I scowled up a storm on the way and brooded. It had never solved any of my problems in the past, but there was always a first time. When we walked back out into the sunshine, Murphy said, You think they know anything else? They know something, I said, or think they do. That was a rhetorical question, Harry. Bite me, I shook my head. What's our next move? Dig into Jessica Blanche's background, she replied. See what we turn up. I nodded. Easier than searching Chicago for guys in big gray cloaks. She paused for a moment, and I knew her well enough to know that she was choosing her words carefully. But maybe not easier than finding pale, beautiful, dark-haired men who may or may not have been the last person seen with a woman who died in the midst of sexual ecstasy. For a moment, our only conversation was footsteps. It isn't him, I said then. He's my brother. Sure, yeah, she agreed. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a while, sure, I admitted. A moment later, I added, and he's on his own now, making really good money doing something, though I don't know what, because he will never, ever say. Murphy nodded. Yes? And I guess it's true that he's awfully well fed these days, I went on, and that he won't tell me how. We went a few more steps. 
and that he thinks of himself as a monster, and that he got sick and tired of trying to be human. We crossed the street in silence. When I got to the other side, I stopped and looked at Murphy. Shit. We both started down the sidewalk to Murphy's Saturn. Harry, she said quietly, I think you're probably right about him, but there are lives at stake. We have to be sure. A flash of anger went through me, an instant and instinctive denial that my brother, my only living flesh and blood, could be involved in this mess. Intense, irrational fury and an equally irrational sense of betrayal at Murphy's gentle accusation fed on each other, swelling rapidly. It took me off guard. I had never felt such volatile determination to destroy a threat to my brother outside of life and death struggles we found ourselves trapped within. The emotions roared through me like molten steel, and I found myself instinctively gathering my will under their searing influence. For just a second, I wanted to smash things to powder, starting with anyone who even thought about trying to hurt Thomas. And the strength to do it welled up inside me like steam in a boiler. I snarled and closed my eyes, forcing control upon myself. This was no life and death struggle. It was a sidewalk. There would be no noisy and satisfying release of that anger but the energy that I had unconsciously gathered had the potential to be dangerous in any case. I reached down to brush the sidewalk with my fingertips, allowing the dangerous buildup of magic to ground itself more or less harmlessly into the earth, and only a trace amount of energy flared out into a disruptive pattern. It saved our lives. The instant I released the excess energy into the area around us, a nearby stoplight blew out, Murphy's cell phone started blaring stars and stripes forever, three car alarms went off, and Murphy's Saturn coupe went up in a brilliant ball of fire and an ear-shattering blast of thunder. Chapter 7 There was no time to do anything. Even if I'd been crouched, tense, and holding defensive magic ready to go, I wouldn't have beaten the explosion to the punch. It was instant and violent and did not at all care whether I was on my guard or not. Something that felt vaguely like an enormous feather pillow swung by the incredible hulk slammed into my chest. It lifted me up off the ground and dumped me on the sidewalk several feet later. My shoulder clipped a mailbox as I went by it, and then I had a good, steady view of the clear summer sky above me as I lay on my back and ached. I'd lived which was always a good start in this kind of situation. It couldn't have been a very big explosion then. It had to have been more incendiary than concussive, a big old rolling ball of flame that would have shattered windows and burned things and set things on fire and pushed a whole lot of air out of the way along with one hairy Dresden, wizard, slightly used. I sat up and peered at the rolling cloud of black smoke and red flame where Murphy's Saturn was, which bore out my supposition pretty well. I squinted to one side and saw Murphy sitting slowly back up. She had a short, bleeding cut on her upper lip. She looked pale and shaken. I couldn't help it. I started laughing like a drunk. Well, I said, under the circumstances, I'm forced to conclude that you were right. 
I am a control freak, and you were 100% right to be the one driving the car. Thank you, Murph. She gave me a slow, hard stare, drew in a deep breath, and said through clenched teeth, no problem. I grinned back at her and slumped back down onto my back. You okay? She dabbed at the blood on her lip with one hand. Think so. You? Clip my shoulder on a mailbox, I said. It hurts a little. Not a lot. Maybe I could take an aspirin. Just one. Not a whole dose or anything. She sighed. My God, you're a whiner, Dresden. We sat there quietly for a minute while sirens began in the distance and came closer. Bomb, you think? Murphy said, in that tone people use when they don't know what else to say. Yeah, I said. I was grounding some extra energy out when it went off. It must have hexed up the bomb's timer or receiver, set it off early. Unless it was intended as a warning shot, she said. I grunted. Who's bomb, you think? I haven't annoyed anyone new lately, Murphy said. Neither have I. You've annoyed a lot more people than me in Toto. In Toto, I said. Who talks like that? Besides, car bombs aren't really within, within the, uh, idiom, Murphy asked, with what might have been a very slight British accent. Idiom, I declared in my best John Cleese impersonation. The idiom of the entities I've ticked off. And you're really turning me on with the Monty Python reference. You're pathetic, Harry. Her smile faded. But a car bomb is well within the idiom of ex-cons, she said. Mrs. Beckett was inside with us the whole time, remember? And Mr. Beckett? Murphy asked. Oh, I said. Ah, think he's out by now? I think we've got some things to find out, she said. You'd better go. I should? I'm not on the clock, remember? Murphy said. It's my car. Simpler if there's only one person answering all the questions. Right, I said, and pushed myself up. Which end do you want? I'll take our odd corpse out and the Becketts, she said. I offered her a hand up. She took it, which meant more to the two of us than it would to anyone looking on. And you? I sighed. I'll talk to my brother. I'm sure he's not involved, Murphy said quietly. But, but he knows the incubus business, I said, which wasn't what Murphy had been about to say. It might have drawn an angry response out of me, but rationally speaking, I couldn't blame her for her suspicion either. She was a cop. She'd spent her entire adult life dealing with the most treacherous and dishonest portions of the human condition. Speaking logically, she was right to suspect and question until more information presented itself. People's lives were at stake. But Thomas was my brother, my blood. Logic and rationality had little to do with it. The first emergency unit, a patrolling police car, rounded the corner a couple of blocks away. Fire trucks weren't far behind. Time to go, Murphy said quietly. I'll see what I can find out, I told her, and walked away. I took the L back to my neighborhood on high alert, watching for anyone who might be following, lying in wait, or otherwise planning malicious deeds involving me. I didn't see anyone doing any of those things on the L, 
or as I walked to my apartment in the basement of an old boarding house. Once there, I walked down a sunken concrete staircase to my front door, one of those nifty all-metal security doors, and with a muttered word and an effort of will, I disarmed the wards that protected my home. Then I used a key to open its conventional locks and slipped inside. Mister promptly hurtled into my shins with a shoulder block of greeting. The big gray cat weighed about 30 pounds, and the impact actually rocked me back enough to let my shoulder blades bump against the door. I reached down and gave his ears a quick rub. Mister purred, walking in circles around one of my legs, then sidled away and hopped up onto a bookshelf to resume the important business of napping away a summer afternoon in wait for the cool of evening. An enormous mound of shaggy gray and black fur appeared from the shadows in the little linoleum-floored alcove that passed from my kitchen. It walked over to me, yawning as it came, its tail wagging in relaxed greeting. I hunkered down as my dog sat and thrust his head toward me, and I vigorously scratched his ears and chin and the thick ruff of fur over his neck with both hands. Mouse, all quiet on the home front, boy. His tail wagged some more, jaw dropping open to expose a lethal array of very white teeth, and his tongue lolled out in a doggy grin. Oh, I forgot the mail, I said. You mind getting it? Mouse promptly rose, and I opened the door. He padded out in total silence. Mouse moves lightly for a rhinoceros. I crossed my floor of mismatched carpets and rugs to slump into the easy chair by the old fireplace. I picked up my phone and dialed Thomas's number. No answer. I glared at the phone for a minute, and because I wasn't sure what else to do, I tried it again. No one answered. What were the odds? I chewed on my lip for a minute and began to worry about my brother. Mouse returned a moment later, long enough to have gone out to the designated dog-friendly little area in the house's yard. He had several bits of mail held gently in his mouth, and he dropped them carefully onto the surface of the old wooden coffee table in front of my sofa. Then he went over to the door and leaned a shoulder against it. It hadn't been installed quite right, and it was a real pain in the ass to open, and once it was open, it was a pain in the ass to close. Mouse shoved at the door with a little snort of familiar effort, and it swung too. Then he came back over to settle down by me. Thanks, boy. I grabbed the mail, scratched his ears again, and flicked to life several candles on the end table next to the recliner with a muttered spell. Bills, I reported to him going through the mail. More bills, junk mail, another Best Buy catalog. Jesus, those people won't give up. Larry Fowler's new lawyer. I put the unopened envelope against my forehead and closed my eyes. He's threatening me with another variation on the same lawsuit. I opened the letter and skimmed it, then tossed it on the floor. It's as if I'm psychic. I opened the drawer in the end table, felt about with my fingertips, and withdrew a single silver metallic key. The only one on a ring marked with an oval of blue plastic that sported my business card's logo, Harry Dresden, Wizard, Paranormal Investigations, Consulting, Advice, Reasonable Rates. I looked at the key. Thomas had given it to me in case I should need to show up at his place in an emergency. He had a key to my place, too, even after he'd moved out. There had been a tacit understanding between us. 
The keys were there in case one or the other of us needed help. They had not been given so that one or the other of us could go snooping uninvited around the other one's home and life. Though I suspected that Thomas had looked in on my place a few times, hoping to figure out how the place managed to get so clean. He'd never caught my housekeeping brownies at work. And he never would. They're pros. The only drawback to having fairy housekeepers is that you can't tell people about them. If you do, they're gone. And no, I don't know why. The faces of the dead women drifted through my thoughts, and I sighed and closed my fingers around the key. Okay, boy, I said. Time to go visit Thomas. Mouse rose up expectantly, his tags jingling, his tail thrashing energetically. Mouse liked going for rides in the car. He trotted over to the door, pulled his lead down from where it hung on the doorknob, and brought it over to me. Hang on, I told him. I need the arsenal. I hate it when bad business goes down in summer. I put on my torturously warm leather duster. I figured I could take death from heat prostration to whole new levels, given the potential presence of further firebombs. And that could land me a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records, maybe even a Darwin Award. See there? That's called positive thinking. I put on my new and improved shield bracelet, too and slipped three silver rings onto the fingers of my right hand. I snagged my blasting rod, clipped Mouse's lead on, took up my staff, and tromped on out to the car. I told Mouse to stay back while I approached the blue beetle, my battered, often repaired, mismatched Volkswagen bug. I looked all around it, then lay down to check the vehicle's undercarriage. I looked at the trunk and under the hood next, I even examined it for traces of hostile magic. I didn't find anything that resembled a bomb or looked dangerous, unless you counted the half-eaten Taco Bell burrito that had somehow gotten tossed into the trunk about six months ago. I opened the door, whistled for Mouse, and off we went to invade my brother's privacy. I hadn't actually visited Thomas's place before, and I was a little taken aback when I got there. I had assumed that the street address was to one of the new buildings in Cabrini Green, where urban renewal had been shoved down the throat of the former slum by the powers that be, largely because it bordered on the Gold Coast, the most expensive section of town and the second highest income neighborhood in the world. The neighborhood around the Green had become slowly more tolerable, and the newer apartment buildings that had replaced the old were fairly nice. But Thomas's apartment wasn't in one of those buildings. He was across the street, living in the Gold Coast. When Mouse and I got to the right apartment building, twilight was fading fast and I felt underdressed. The doorman's shoes were nicer than any I owned. I opened the outer door with Thomas's key and marched to the elevators, Mouse walking smartly at heel. The doorman watched me, and I spotted two security cameras between the front door and the elevator. Security would have a pretty good idea who was a resident and who wasn't. And an extremely tall and gangly man in a black coat with nearly 200 pounds of dog with him wouldn't be something they forgot. So I tried to stall them with body language, walking the walk of the impatient and confident in the hopes that it would make the security guys hesitate. Either it worked, or the building's security people were getting paid too much. No one challenged me, 
and I took the elevator to the 16th floor and walked down the hall to Thomas's apartment. I unlocked the door, gave it a couple of knocks, and then opened it without waiting. I slipped in with Mouse and found the light switch beside the door before I closed it. Thomas's apartment was, well, chic. The door opened onto a living room bigger than my entire apartment, which, granted, will never cause anxiety to agoraphobics. The walls were painted a deep crimson, and the carpeting was a rich charcoal gray. The furniture all matched, from the sofas to the chairs to the entertainment centers, all of it done in stainless steel and black, and a little more art deco than I would have preferred. He had a TV too big ever to fit into the Beetle, and a DVD player and surround sound and racks of DVDs and CDs. One of the newer video game systems rested neatly on a shelf, all its wires squared away and organized. Two movie posters decorated the walls, The Wizard of Oz and The Pirates of Penzance, the one with Kevin Kline as the Pirate King. Well, it was good to see that my brother was doing well for himself, though I had to wonder what he was doing that pulled down the kind of money this place would require. The kitchen was like the living room, a lot of the same stainless steel and black in the appliances, though the walls had been painted white, as was the expensive tile floor. Everything was pristine. No dirty dishes, no half-open cupboards, no food stains, no papers lying about. Every single horizontal surface in the place was empty and sanitized. I checked the cupboards. The dishes stood in neat stacks, perfectly fitted to their storage in the cupboard none of which made sense. Thomas had a lot of positive qualities, but my brother was a fairly shameless slob. I get it now. He's dead, I said aloud to Mouse. My brother is dead, and he's been replaced with some kind of obsessive, compulsive, evil clone. I checked the fridge. I couldn't help it. It's one of those things you do when you're snooping through someone's house. It was empty, except for one of those boxes of wine, and about 50 bottles of Thomas's favorite beer, one of Mac's microbrewed ales. Mac would have killed Thomas for keeping it cold. Well, he would have scowled in disapproval anyway. For Mac, that was tantamount to a homicidal reaction in other people. I checked the freezer. It was packed, wall to wall, with TV meals and neat stacks. There were three different meals stacked up in alternating order. There was room for maybe nine or ten more, and I presume the others eaten. Thomas probably went shopping only every couple of months. That was more like him. Beer, food cooked by pushing one button on a microwave, no dishes needed, and the drawer nearest the freezer yielded up a container of plastic forks and knives. Eat, discard, no cooking or cleaning necessary. I looked around at the rest of the kitchen, then went down the little hall that led to two bedrooms and a bath, and snorted in triumph. The bathroom was in total disarray, with toothbrushes and various grooming supplies tossed here and there, apparently at random. A couple of empty beer bottles sat out. The floor was carpeted with discarded clothing. Several half-used rolls of toilet paper sat around, with an empty cardboard tube still on the dispenser. I checked in the first bedroom. It, too, was more Thomas's style. 
There was a king-sized bed with no head or foot, only the metal frame to support it. It had white sheets, several pillows in white cases, and a big dark blue comforter on top. All of them were disheveled. The closet door stood open, and more clothes lay around on the floor. Two laundry baskets of fresh, neatly folded and ironed clothing, mostly empty, sat on a dresser with three of its drawers slightly open. There was a bookshelf haphazardly saturated with fiction of every description, and a clock radio. A pair of swords, one of them an old U.S. cavalry saber, the other a more musketeer-looking weapon, were leaned against the wall, where they'd be more or less within reach of anyone in the bed. I went back to the hall and shook my head at the rest of the apartment. It's a disguise, I told Mouse. The front of the apartment. He wants it to give a certain impression. He makes sure no one gets to see the rest. Mouse tilted his head and looked at me. Maybe I should just leave him a note. The phone rang, and I about jumped out of my skin. After I made sure I wasn't having a cardiac episode, I padded back out to the living room, debating whether or not to answer it. I decided not to. It was probably building security calling to check up on the stranger who had walked in with a pet woolly mammoth. If I answered and Thomas wasn't here, they might get suspicious. More suspicious. If I let them eat answering machine, they'd still be uncertain. I waited. The answering machine beeped, and my brother's recorded voice said, You know the drill. It beeped again. A woman's voice poured out of the answering machine like warm honey. Tomas, she said. It is Alessandra, and I am desperate for you. Please, I need to see you tonight. I know that there are others, that there are so many others, but I can't stand it anymore, and I must have you. Her tone lowered, thick with sensuality. There is no one, no one else who can do for me what you do. Do not disappoint me, I beg you. She left her number, and her voice made it sound like foreplay. By the time she hung up, I had begun to feel uncomfortably voyeuristic for listening. I sighed and told Mouse, I so need to get laid. At least now I knew what Thomas had been feeding his hunger. Alessandra and so many others must be supplying him. I felt ambiguous about that. He could feed the demonic portion of his nature on many different victims, effectively spreading out the damage he inflicted upon them in a bid to avoid fatally overfeeding upon any one of them. Even so, it meant that there were a number of lives who had been tainted by his embrace, women who had become addicted to the sensation of being fed upon, who were now under his influence, subject to his control. It was power of a sort, and power tends to corrupt. Wielding such authority over others would provide a great many temptations, and Thomas had been distant of late, very distant. I took a deep breath and said, Don't get carried away, Harry. He's your brother. Innocent until proven guilty, right? Right, I replied to myself. I decided to leave Thomas a note. I didn't have any paper handy. The stylishly sterile kitchen and living room yielded none, nor did the bedroom. 
I shook my head, muttering about people who couldn't organize their way out of a paper bag, and checked in the second bedroom. I flicked on the light, and my heart stopped. The room looked like the office of Rambo's accountant. There was a desk and computer against one wall. Tables lined two of the other walls. One of them was dedicated to the neatly organized disassembly of a pair of weapons, submachine guns I didn't recognize right away. I did, however, recognize the kit for home converting the weapons from legal semi-automatics to fully illegal automatics. A second table looked like a workbench with the necessary tools to modify weapons and custom assemble ammunition. It would not be difficult to create explosive devices, such as pipe bombs, with what he had there. If the heavy storage containers under the table contained, as I suspected, explosive compounds, a nasty thought went through my mind. They could just as easily be used to create incendiaries. One wall was covered with corkboard. There were papers tacked up on it, maps, photographs. I walked over to the photos with heavy, reluctant feet. There were photos of dead women. I recognized them all, the victims. The photos were those instamatic kind. They were a little grainy, the images lit by the harsh glare of a flashbulb, but they covered many of the same angles as the police photos. There was one difference, though. The police photos had all been neatly indexed, with small placards with large printed numbers appearing in each shot, accompanied by a meticulous written diagram recording their relative positions and what they showed, locking the scene down for future reference. Thomas's photos did not have any such placards, which meant that they could only have been taken before the police got there. Holy shit. What was my brother thinking? Leaving all of this stuff sitting out here like this. Anyone who came by with an only slightly biased point of view would come to the conclusion that he had been at all of those sites before the police, that he was a killer. I mean, I was his brother, and even I thought that it looked damn peculiar. Hell's bells, I sighed to Mouse. Can this day get any worse? A heavy, confident hand delivered a short series of knocks to the apartment's door. Security, called a man's voice. Here with Chicago police. Open the door, please, sir. Chapter 8 I had only a few seconds to think. If security had called in a cop, they were thinking I might be trouble. If I came off as something suspicious, they'd probably take a look around as a matter of course. If that happened, and they found what was in my brother's war room, I'd be buying us both more kinds of trouble than I could count. I needed a lie. A really good, really believable lie. I shut the door to Thomas's war room and bedroom and stared around the immaculate, stylish, track-lit living room, trying to think of one. I stared at Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion, looking for inspiration. Nothing. The Pirate King, with his white shirt manfully open to his waist, didn't give me any ideas either. And then it hit me. Thomas had already established the lie. He'd used it before, no less, and it was just his style of camouflage, too. 
All I had to do was play up to it. I can't believe I'm about to do this, I told Mouse. Then I set my coat and staff aside, took a deep breath, flounced to the door, opened it, and demanded, He sent you, didn't he? Don't try to lie to me. A patrol cop, God, she looked young, regarded me with a polite, bored expression. Um, sir? Tomas, I snarled, pronouncing it the same way as the woman on the answering machine. He's not man enough to have come to meet me himself, is he? He sent his bully boys to do it for him. The cop let out a long-suffering breath. Sir, please, let's stay calm here. She turned to the building's security guy, a nervous-looking, balding man in his 40s. Now, according to building security, you aren't a known resident, but you've entered with a key. It's standard procedure for them to ask a few questions. Questions, I said. It was hard not to lisp, so hard. But that might have been too much. I settled for saying everything in my Murphy impersonation voice. Why don't you start with why he hasn't called me, hmm? After giving me his spare key? Ask him why he hasn't come to visit the baby. I pointed an accusatory finger at Mouse. Ask him what excuse he has this time. The cop looked as if she had a headache. She blinked at me once, lifted a hand to her mouth, coughed, and stepped aside, gesturing to the security guy. He blinked a few times. Sir, the security man said, uh, it's just that Mr. Wraith hasn't actually listed with building security anyone he's given access to his apartment. He better not have, I said. I have given him years, years, and I will not be cast aside like last season's shoes. I shook my head and told the young cop in an aside voice, never date a beautiful man. It isn't worth what you have to put up with. Sir, the security man said, I'm sorry to uh, intrude, but part of what our residents pay for is security. May I see your key, please? I can't believe that he never even... I trailed off into a mutter, got the key out of my coat pocket, and showed it to him. The security guy took it, squinted at it, and checked a number on its back against the list on his clipboard. This is one of the resident's original keys, he confirmed. That's right. Tomas gave it to me, I said. I see, the security man said. Uh, would you mind if I saw some photo ID, sir? I'll put a copy in our file so this won't uh, happen again. I was going to kill my brother later. Of course not, sir, I assured him, trying to appear mollified and reluctantly willing to be gracious. I got out my wallet and handed him my driver's license. The cop glanced at it as it went by. I'll be right back, he told me, and hustled toward the elevator. Sorry about this, the cop told me. They get paid to be a little paranoid. Not your fault, officer, I told her. She regarded me thoughtfully for a moment. So you and the owner are, uh... We're something, I sighed. You can never get the pretty ones to come out and say exactly, can you? Not generally, no, she said. Her tone of voice stayed steady, her expression mild, but I knew a poker face when I saw one. Do you mind if I ask what you're doing here? I had to be careful. The young cop wasn't dumb. She thought she smelled a rat. I gestured forlornly at the dog. We were living together in a tiny little place. We got a dog and didn't know he was going to get so big. 
Tomas was feeling crowded, so he moved into his own place, and I shrugged and tried to look like Murphy did when talking about her exes. We were supposed to switch off every month, but he always had some excuse. He didn't want the dog slobbering around his little neat freak world, I gestured at the apartment. The cop looked around and nodded politely. Nice place, but she hadn't been convinced. Not completely. I saw her putting a few thoughts together, formulating more questions. Mouse pulled it out of the fire for me. He padded over to the door, looked up at the cop. Good Lord, he's huge, the cop said. She leaned slightly away from him. Oh, he's a big softy, isn't he? I crooned to him and ruffled his ears. Mouse gave her a big doggy grin, sat and offered her one of his paws. She laughed and shook. She let Mouse sniff the back of her hand and then scratched his ears herself. You know dogs, I said. I'm in training for one of the canine units, she confirmed. He likes you, I said. That's unusual. He's usually a great big chicken, she smiled. Oh, I think dogs can tell when someone likes them. They're smarter about that kind of thing than people give them credit for. God knows that seems to be smarter than I can ever manage, I sighed. What kind of dogs do they use at canine units? Oh, it varies a great deal, she said, and started in on talking about candidates for police dogs. I kept her going with a couple of questions and a lot of interested nodding, and Mouse demonstrated his ability to sit and lie down and roll over. By the time the security guy and his apologetic expression got back, Mouse was sprawled on his back, paws waving languidly in the air while the cop scratched his tummy and told me a pretty good dog story about her own childhood and an encounter with the prowler. Sir, he said, handing my key and license back and trying not to look like he was carefully not touching me. I apologize for the inconvenience, but as you are not a resident here, it is standard procedure for visitors to check in with the security personnel at the entrance when entering or leaving the building. This is just typical of him, I said, forgetting something like this. I probably should have called ahead and made sure he told you. I'm sorry, he said. I hate to inconvenience you, but until we do have that written authorization from Mr. Wraith that he wishes you to have full access, I need to ask you to leave. I know it's just paperwork, but I'm afraid there's no way around it. I sighed. Typical, just typical. And I understand you're doing your job, sir. Let me go to the bathroom and I'll be right down. Perfectly all right, he told me. Officer. The cop stood up from Mouse and gave me a lingering look. Then she nodded and the pair of them headed back down the hall. I let Mouse back in then closed the door most of the way and listened narrowing the focus of my attention until nothing existed but sound and silence. Are you sure? The cop asked the security guy. Oh, absolutely, he said. Tomas, he said, emphasizing the pronunciation, is as queer as a three-dollar bill. He have any other men here? Once or twice, the man said. This tall one is new, but he does have one of the original keys. He could have stolen it, the cop said. An NBA-sized gay burglar who works with a dog, the security guy replied. We'll make sure he's not stealing the fridge when he comes out. If Wraith is missing anything, we'll point him right at this guy. We've got him on video, eyewitnesses putting him in the apartment, a copy of his driver's license for crying out loud. If they're in a relationship, the cop said, how come this Wraith guy never cleared his boyfriend? 
You know how queers are. The way they sleep around, the security guy said. He was just covering his ass. So to speak, the cop said. Security guy missed the irony in her tone and let out a smug chuckle. Like I said, we'll watch him. Do that, the cop said. I don't like it, but if you're sure. I don't want a jilted queen making a big scene. No one wants that. Heavens, no, the cop said, her tone flat. I eased the door shut and said to Mouse, thank God for bigotry. Mouse tilted his head at me. Bigots see something they expect, and then they stop thinking about what is in front of them, I told him. It's probably how they got to be bigots in the first place. Mouse looked unenlightened and undisturbed by it. We've only got a couple of minutes if I want them to stay complacent, I said quietly. I looked around the apartment for a minute. No note, I said. Not necessary now. I went back to the war room, turned on the light, and stared at the huge corkboard wall with its maps, notes, pictures, and diagrams. There was no time to make sense of it. I closed my eyes for a moment, lowered certain mental defenses I'd held in place for a considerable while, and cast a thought into the vaults of my mind. Take a memo. Then I stepped up to the wall and scanned my eyes over it, not really stopping to take in any information. I caught glimpses of each photo and piece of paper. It took me maybe a minute. Then I turned the lights back out, gathered my things, and left. I breezed out of the elevators, stopping at the security guy's desk. He nodded at me and waved me out, and Mouse and I departed the building, secure in our heterosexuality. Then I went back to my car and headed home to seek counsel from a fallen angel. Chapter 9 I picked up some burgers, four for me and four for Mouse, and went home. I got onion rings too, but Mouse didn't get any because my class 4 hazmat suit was at the cleaners. Mister, of course, got an onion ring because he has seniority. He ate some, batted the rest around the kitchen floor for a minute, then growled to be let outside for his evening ramble. By the time I'd eaten, it was after 10, and I was entertaining thoughts of putting off more investigation until after a full night's sleep. Pulling all-nighters was getting to be more difficult than it had been when I was 20, and full of what my old mentor Ebenezer McCoy would term vinegar. Staying awake wasn't the issue. If anything, it was far easier to ignore fatigue and maintain concentration these days. Recovering from it was a different story. I didn't bounce back from the sleep deprivation quite as quickly as I used to, and a missed night's sleep tended to make me grouchy for a couple of days while I got caught up. Two, my body was still recovering from way too many injuries suffered in previous cases. If I'd been a normal human being, I'd probably be walking around with a collection of scars, residual pain, and stiff joints, like an NFL lineman at the tail end of an injury-plagued career, or a boxer who had been hit too many times. But I wasn't normal. Whatever it is that allows me to use magic also gives me a greatly enhanced lifespan, and an ability to eventually recover from injuries that would, in a normal person, be permanently disabling. That didn't really help me much on an immediate day-to-day -day basis, but given what my body's gone through, I'm just as glad that I could get better with enough work and enough time. Losing a hand is bad for anyone, 
living for three or four centuries with one hand would, in the words of my generation, blow goats. Sleep would be nice, but Thomas might need my help. I'd get plenty of sleep when I was dead. I glanced at my maimed hand, then picked up my old acoustic guitar and sat down on the sofa. I flicked some candles to life and, concentrating on my left hand, began to practice. Simple scales first, then a few other exercises to warm up, then some quiet play. My hand was nowhere close to 100%, but it was a lot better than it had been, and I finally drilled enough basics into my fingers to allow me to play a little. Mouse lifted his head and looked at me. He let out a very quiet sigh. Then he heaved himself to his feet from where he'd been sleeping and padded into my bedroom. He nudged the door shut with his nose. Everybody's a critic. Okay, Lash, I said and kept playing. Let's talk. Lash, said a quiet woman's voice. Do I merit an affectionate nickname now? One minute, there was no one sitting in the recliner facing the sofa. The next, a woman sat there. Poof, just like magic. She was tall, six feet or so, and built like an athlete. Generally, when she appeared to me, she appeared as a healthy-looking young woman with girl-next-door good looks, dressed in a white Greco-Roman tunic that fell to mid-thigh. Plain leather sandals had covered her feet, their thongs wrapping up around her calves. Her hair color had changed occasionally, but the outfit had remained a constant. Given the fact that you're a fallen angel, literally older than time, and capable of thought and action I can't really comprehend. Whereas to you, I am a mere mortal, with a teeny bit more power than most. I thought of it more as a thinly veiled bit of insolence, I smiled at her, lash. She tilted her head back and laughed, to all appearances genuinely amused. From you... It is perhaps not as insulting as it might be from another mortal. And after all, I am not in fact that being. I am only her shadow, her emissary, a figment of your own perception, and a guest within your mind. Guests get invited, I said. You are more like a vacuum cleaner salesman who managed to talk his way inside for a demonstration and just won't leave. Touché, my host, she admitted. Though I would like to think I have been both more helpful and infinitely more courteous than such an individual. Granted, I said, it doesn't change anything about being unwelcome. Then rid yourself of me. Take up the coin, and I will rejoin the rest of myself, whole again. You will be well rid of me. I snorted. <laughs> yeah, up until Big Sister gets into my head, turns me into her psychotic boy toy, and I wind up a monster like the rest of the denarians. Lashiel, the fallen angel whose full being was currently bound in an old Roman denarius in my basement, held up a mollifying hand. Have I not given you sufficient space? Have I not done as you asked, remained silent and still? When is the last time I have intruded, the last time we spoke, my host? I hit a bad chord, grimaced and muted it out. Then I started over. New Mexico, and that wasn't by choice. Of course it was, she said. It is always your choice. I shook my head. I don't speak ghoul. As far as I know, no one does. None of you have ever lived in ancient Sumeria, Lashiel said. I ignored her. 
I had to have answers from the ghoul to get those kids back. There was no time for anything else. You were last resort. And tonight? she asked. Am I a last resort tonight? The next couple of chords came out hard and loud. It's Thomas. She folded her hands in her lap and regarded one of the nearby candles. Ah, yes, she said more quietly. You care for him a great deal. He's my blood, I said. Allow me to rephrase the observation. You care for him to an irrational degree. She tilted her head and studied me. Why? I spoke in a slower voice. He's my blood. I understand your words, but they don't mean anything. They wouldn't, I said, not to you. She frowned at that and looked at me, her expression mildly disturbed. I see. No, I said, you don't, you can't. Her expression became remote and blank, her gaze returning to the candle. Do not be too sure, my host. I too had brothers and sisters, once upon a time. I stared at her for a second. God, she sounded sincere. She isn't, Harry, I told myself. She's a liar. She's running a con on you to convince you to like her, or at least trust her. From there, it would be a short commute to the recruiter's office of the Legion of Doom. I reminded myself very firmly that what the fallen angel offered me, knowledge, power, companionship, would come at too high a price. It was foolish of me to keep falling back on her help, even though what she had done for me had undoubtedly saved both my life and that of many others. I reminded myself that too much dependence upon her would be a very, very bad thing. But she still looked sad. I concentrated on my music for a moment. It was hard not to experience the occasional fit of empathy for her. The trick was to make sure that I never forgot her true goal. Seduction, corruption, the subversion of my free will. The only way to prevent that was to be sure to guard my decisions and actions with detached reason, rather than letting my emotions get the better of me. If that happened, it would be easy to play right into the true Lashiel's hands. Hell, it'd probably be fun. I shook off that thought and lumbered through Every Breath You Take by the police and an acoustic version of I Will Survive I'd put together myself. After I finished that, I tried to go through a little piece I'd written that was supposed to sound like classic Spanish guitar while giving me a little exercise therapy on the mostly numb fingers of my left hand. I'd played it a thousand times, and while I had improved, it was still something painful to listen to. Except this time. This time, I realized halfway in, I was playing flawlessly. I was playing faster than my usual tempo, throwing in a few licks, vibrato, some nifty transitional phrases, and it sounded good, like Santana good. I finished the song and then looked up at Lashio. She was watching me steadily. Illusion, I asked her. She gave a small shake of her head. I was merely helping. I can't write original music anymore. I haven't made any music in ages. I just... Help the music you heard in your thoughts get out through your fingers. I circumvented some of the damaged nerves. It was all you, otherwise, my host. 
which was just about the coolest thing Lashiel had ever done for me. Don't get me wrong, the survival-oriented things were super, but this was playing guitar. She had helped me to create something of beauty, and it satisfied an urge in me so deep-set and vital that I had never really realized what it was. Somehow, I knew, without a hint of a doubt, that I would never be able to play that well on my own, ever again. Could evil, true capital E evil, do such a thing? Help create something whole and lovely and precious? Careful, Harry, careful. This isn't helping either of us, I said quietly. Thank you, but I'm learning it myself. I'll get there on my own. I set the guitar down on its little stand. Besides, there's work to be done. She nodded once. Very well. This is regarding Thomas's apartment and its contents? Yes, I said. Can you show them to me? Lashio lifted a hand and the wall opposite the fireplace changed. Technically, it hadn't actually changed, but Lashio, who existed only as an entity of thought hanging around in my head, was able to create illusions of startling, even daunting clarity, even if I was the only one who could perceive them. She could sense the physical world through me, and she carried eons of knowledge and experience. Her memory and eye for detail were almost entirely flawless. So she created the illusion of the wall of Thomas's war room and put it over my own wall. It was even lit the same way as in my brother's apartment, every detail, I knew, entirely faithful to what I had seen earlier that night. I padded over to the wall and started checking it out more thoroughly. My brother's handwriting was all but unreadable, which made the notes he'd scribbled of dubious value in terms of actually enlightening me as to what was going on. My host, Lashiel began. I held up a hand for silence. Not yet. Let me look at it unprejudiced first. Then you tell me what you think. As you wish. I went over the stuff there for an hour or so, frowning. I had to go check a calendar a couple of times. I got out a notebook and scribbled things down as I worked them out. All right, I said quietly, settling back down on the sofa. Thomas was following several people. The dead women and at least a dozen more in different parts of the city. He had a running surveillance on them. I think he probably hired a private detective or two to cover some of the observation, keeping tabs on where people were going, figuring out the recurring events in their schedules. I held up the notebook. These are the names of the folks he was, I shrugged, stalking, I suppose. My guess is that the other people on this list are among the missing folk the ladies of the Ordo Lebes told us about. Think you Thomas preyed upon them? Lashiel asked. I started to deny it, instantly and firmly, but stopped. Reason, judgment, rational thought. He could have, I said quietly, but my instincts say it isn't him. Why would it not be? Lashiel asked me. Upon what do you base your reasoning? Upon Thomas, I said. It isn't him. To engage in wholesale murder and abduction? No way. Maybe he fell off the incubus wagon, sure, but he wouldn't inflict any more harm than he had to. It isn't his way. Not his way by choice, Lashiel said. Though I feel I must point out that I cut her off, waving a hand. I know, 
His sister could have gotten involved. She already ate Lord Wraith's free will. She could have monkeyed around with Thomas's mind, too. And if not Lara, then there are plenty of others who might have done it. Thomas could be doing these things against his will. Hell, he might not even remember he's doing them. Or he might be acting of his own volition. He has another point of weakness, Lashiel said. Huh? Lara Wraith holds Justine. A point I hadn't yet considered. Justine was my brother's... Well, I don't know if there's a word for what she was to him. But he loved her, and she him. It wasn't their fault that she was slightly insane, and he was a life-force-devouring creature of the night. They'd been willing to give up their lives for each other in the midst of a crisis, and the love confirmed by doing so had rendered Justine deadly to my brother, poisonous to him. Love is like that to the white court, an intolerable agony to them, the way holy water is to other breeds. Someone touched by pure and honest love cannot be fed upon, which had more or less put an end to Thomas's ability to be near Justine. It was probably just as well. That last time they'd been together had all but killed Justine. The last time I'd seen her, she'd been a wasted, frail, white-haired thing, barely capable of stringing sentences together. It had torn my brother apart to see what he'd done to her. To my knowledge, he hadn't even tried to be a part of her life again. I couldn't blame him. Lara watched over Justine now, though she could not feed upon the girl any more than Thomas could. But Lara could cut her throat, if it came to that. My brother might very well be capable of some unpleasant things in the interests of protecting Justine. Strike that, he was capable of anything where the girl was concerned. Means, motive, opportunity. The equation of murder was balanced. I looked back at the illusory wall, where the pictures, maps, and notes grouped together in a broad band near the top, then descended into fewer notes on the next strip down, and so on, forming a vague V shape. At the top of the V rested a single square yellow sticky note. That note read, in a heavy hand, Ordo Lebes, find them. Damn it, Thomas, I muttered quietly. I addressed Lashiel. Get rid of it. Lashiel nodded and the illusion disappeared. There is something else you should know, my host. I eyed her. What's that? It may concern your safety and the course of your investigation. May I show you? The word no came strongly to mind, but I was already in for a penny, so to speak. Lashiel's wealth of intelligence and experience made her an extremely capable advisor. Briefly. She nodded, rose, and suddenly I was standing in Anna Ash's apartment, as I had been that afternoon. My host, Lashiel said, remember how many women you observed entering the building? I frowned. Sure. As many as half a dozen had the right look, though anyone who arrived before Murphy and I got there could have already been inside. Precisely, Lashiel said. Here. She waved a hand, and an image of me appeared in the apartment's entry, Murphy at my side. Anna Ash, Lashiel said. She nodded toward me, and Anna's image appeared facing me. Can you describe the others in attendance? 
Helen Beckett, I said, looking leaner and more weathered than the last time I saw her. Beckett's image appeared where she had been standing by the window. I pointed at the wooden rocking chair. Abby and Toto were there. The plump blonde woman and her dog appeared. I rubbed at my forehead. Uh, two on the sofa and one on the love seat. Three shadowy forms appeared in the named places. I pointed at the sofa. The pretty one in the dance leotard, the one worried about time. She appeared. I pointed at the shadowed figure next to her. Bitter, suspicious Priscilla, who was not being polite. The shadowy figure became Priscilla's image. And there you go, I said. Lashiel shook her head, waved her hand, and the people images all vanished. All except the shadowy figure sitting on the love seat. I blinked. What can you remember about this one? Lashiel asked me. I racked my brain. It's usually good for this kind of thing. Nothing, I said after a moment. Not one damn detail, nothing. I added two and two together and got trouble. Someone was under a veil, someone good enough to make it subtle. Hard to tell it was there at all. Not invisible so much as extremely boring and unremarkable. In your favor, Lashiel said, I should point out that you had crossed the threshold uninvited and thus were deprived of much of your power. In such a circumstance, it would be most difficult for you to sense a veil at all, much less to pierce it. I nodded, frowning at the shadowy figure. It was deliberate, I said. Anna goaded me into walking over the threshold on purpose. She was hiding Miss Mystery from me. Entirely possible, Lashiel concurred. Or, or they didn't know someone was there either, I said. And if that's the case, I tossed the notebook aside with a growl and rose. What are you doing? She asked. I got my staff and coat and got Mouse ready to go. If the mystery guest was news to the Ordo, she's right in among them and they could be in danger. If the Ordo knew about her, then they played me and lied to me. I ripped open the door with more than my usual effort. Either way, I'm going over there to straighten some things out. Chapter 10 I swept the beetle for bombs again and got the impression that I was going to get heartily sick of the chore fast. It was clean, and off we went. I parked illegally on a street about a block from Anna Ash's apartment and walked the rest of the way in. I rang buzzers more or less at random until someone buzzed me in and headed back up the stairs to Anna's apartment. This time, though, I went in armed for bear. As I rode up in the elevator, I got out my jar of unguent, a dark brown concoction that stained the skin for a couple of days. I dabbed a finger in it and smeared it lightly onto my eyelids and at the base of my eyes. It was an ointment originally intended to counter fairy glamour, allowing those who had it to see through illusion to reality. It wasn't quite right for seeing through a veil wrought with mortal magic, but it should be strong enough to show me something of whatever the veil was hiding. I should be able to glimpse any motion, and that would at least give me an idea of which way to face if things got dicey. I brought Mouse for a reason, too. Besides being a small mountain of loyal muscle and ferocious fangs, Mouse could sense bad guys and dark magic when they were nearby. I had yet to encounter the creature that could sneak by Mouse unobserved, 
But just in case today was the day, I had the unguent as a backup plan. I got off the elevator, and the hairs on the back of my neck immediately rose up. Mouse lifted his head sharply, looking back and forth down the hall. He'd felt what I had. A fine cloud of magic hung over the entire floor. I had touched it carefully and found a suggestion of sleep, one of the classics, really. This one wasn't heavy as such things go. I'd seen one sleep spell that flattened an entire ward of Cook County Hospital. I'd used another to protect Murphy's sanity, and it had kept her out for nearly two days. This one wasn't like that. It was light, barely noticeable, and not at all threatening. It was delicate and fine enough to filter into homes, even through their thresholds, most of which were weak enough. Apartments never seemed to have as much defense as a real, discreet home. If those other spells had been sleep medication, this one would have been a glass of warm milk. Someone wanted the residents of the floor to be insensible enough not to notice something, but not so out as to be endangered should there be an emergency, like the building catching fire and burning down. Don't look at me like that. It's a lot likelier than you'd think. Anyway, the suggestion was another finely crafted spell. Delicate, precise, subtle, much like the earlier veil Lashiel had spotted. Whoever or whatever was crafting these workings was a pro. I made sure my shield bracelet was ready to go and marched up to Anna's door. I could sense the ward there, still active, so I thumped my staff on the floor immediately in front of the door. Ms. Ash, I called. It wasn't like I was going to wake anyone up. It's Harry Dresden. We need to talk. There was silence. I repeated myself. I heard a sound, that of someone striving to move silently, a scuff or a creak so faint that I wasn't sure it had been real. I checked Mouse. His ears were pricked up, swiveled forward. He'd heard it too. Someone flushed a toilet on the floor above us. I heard a door open and close, a faint sound, also on another floor. There was no further sound from Anna Ash's apartment. I didn't like where this was going at all. Stand back, buddy, I told Mouse. He did, backing away in that clumsy reverse waddle walk dogs do. I turned to the ward. It was like a little pig's straw house. It wouldn't last more than a second or two against a big bad wolf. And I'll huff and I'll puff, I muttered. I drew up my will, took the staff in both hands, and pressed one end slowly toward the door. Solvos, I murmured. Solvos. Solvos. As the staff touched the door, I sent a gentle surge of will coursing down through its length. It passed through the wood visibly, the carved runes in it briefly illuminated from within by pale blue light. My will hit Anna's door and scattered out in a cloud of pinprick sparkles of white light as my power unbound the patterns of the ward and reduced them to mere anarchy. Anna, I called again. Ms. Ash. No answer. I tried the doorknob. It was unlocked. That can't be good, I told Mouse. Here we go. I quietly opened the door giving it a gentle push so that it would swing wide and let me see inside the darkened apartment. At which point the trap sprang. For traps to work, though, they need to catch their target off his guard. 
I had my new and improved shield bracelet ready when greenish light flashed in the dark apartment and rushed swiftly toward me. I lifted my left hand. Bound around my wrist was a chain made of braided strands of several metals, silver predominant. The metal shields that hung from the bracelet had, in its previous incarnation, been solid silver as well. They had been replaced with shields of silver, iron, copper, nickel, and brass. The new shield wasn't like the old one. The old one had provided an intangible barrier meant to deflect solid matter and kinetic energy. It hadn't been made to stop, for example, heat. That's how my left hand got roasted practically down to the bones. It had been of only limited use against other forms of magic or energy. If there hadn't been a war on, and if I hadn't been spending so much time drilling Molly in the fundamentals, and therefore getting in all kinds of extra practice myself, I would never have considered attempting to create such a complex focus. It was far more complicated than almost anything I'd done before. Five years ago, it would have been beyond me completely. More to the point, five years ago, I wouldn't have been as experienced or as strongly motivated. But that was then, and this was now. The shield that formed in front of me was not the familiar translucent part dome of pale blue light. Instead, it flared into place in a blurring swirl of colors that solidified in an instant into a curving rampart of silver energy. The new shield was far more thorough than the old. Not only would it stop everything the old one had, but it would provide shelter against heat, cold, electricity, even sound and light if I needed it to. It had also been designed to turn aside a fairly broad spectrum of supernatural energies. It was this last that was important at the moment. A globe of green lightning sizzled over the apartment's threshold and abruptly expanded, buzzing arcs of verdant electricity interconnected in a diamond pattern like the weave of a fisherman's net. The spell fell on my shield, and the meeting of energies yielded a torrent of angry yellow sparks that rebounded from the shield, scattering over the hall, the doorway, and bouncing back into the apartment. I dropped the shield as I brandished my staff, sent a savage torrent of power down my arm, and snarled, Fozari! Unseen force lashed through the doorway and splashed against the apartment's threshold. Most of the spell's power struck that barrier, grounded out, and was dissipated. What amounted to less than a percent of the power I had cast out actually made it through the doorway as I had known it would. Instead of delivering a surge of energy strong enough to flip over a car, I delivered only a blow strong enough to knock an adult from her feet. I heard a woman's voice let out a surprised grunt at the impact, and heavy objects clattered to the floor. Mouse, I shouted. The big dog bounded forward through the doorway, and I went in right behind him. Once again, the apartment's threshold stripped away my power, leaving me all but utterly unable to wield magic which is why I brought my 44 revolver with me, tucked into a duster pocket. I had it in my left hand as I came through the door and hit the main light switch with my right elbow, bellowing, I have not had a very good day. Mouse had someone pinned on the ground and kept them there by virtue of simply sitting on them. 200 pounds of mouse is an awfully effective restraint, and though he had his teeth bared, he wasn't actively struggling or making any noise. To my right, Anna Ash stood frozen like a rabbit in a spotlight, and my gun tracked to her immediately. Don't move, I warned her. I don't have any magic at the moment, 
and that always makes me really, really ready to pull the trigger. Oh, God, she said, her voice a rough whisper. She licked her lips, visibly trembling. Okay, she said. Okay, D don't hurt me, please. You don't have to do this. I told her to walk over to Mouse and his prisoner. Once she was standing where I could watch both of them at once, I could relax a little. And though I did not lower the gun, I took my finger off the trigger. Do what? What you've done to the others, Anna said, her voice thready. You don't have to do this, not to anyone. The others, I demanded. I probably sounded at least half as disgusted as I felt. You think I came here to kill you? She blinked at me a few times, then she said, you came here, broke down my door, and pointed a gun at me. What am I supposed to think? I did not break down your door. It was unlocked. You tore apart my ward. Because I thought you might be in trouble, you twit, I hollered. I thought the killer might be here already. A woman let out a couple of choking gasps. After a moment, I realized that it was the person Mouse had pinned down, letting out breathless laughter. I lowered the gun and put it away. For crying out loud, you thought the killer was coming for you? So you laid a trap for him? Well, no, Anna said, now looking somewhat confused again. I mean, I didn't do it. The Ordo. We hired a private investigator to look into it. It was her idea to trap the killer when he came here. A private investigator? I looked over at the other woman and said, Mouse, my dog, tail waving gently, backed off right away and trotted over to stand beside me. The woman he'd been holding down sat up. She was pale, not the sickly pallor of no time in the sun, but the color of the living, healthy skin of a tree beneath the outer bark. Her lean face was intensely attractive, more intriguing than beautiful, with wide, intelligent eyes set over an expressive, generous mouth. She had a slim build, all long legs and long arms, and wore a simple pair of jeans along with a black Aerosmith t-shirt and brown leather Birkenstocks. She propped herself up on her elbows, a tendril of wheat-colored hair falling to almost insolently conceal one eye, and gave me a wry smile. Hello, Harry. She dabbed her fingers at a little bloody spot on her lower lip and winced, though there was still amusement in her voice. Is that a new staff, or are you just happy to see me? And after my heart had skipped a couple of beats, I blinked and said, in a very quiet voice, to the first woman I'd ever everythinged, Hello, Elaine. <laughs>